today, I want to talk about a frequent thing we use on this show, language. I, the only reason this show exists is language. The only reason that you can understand me is language. I would say, and some have considered, that language is one of the greatest inventions that people have ever come up with. Ever. Because it's been responsible for so much different stuff. Like, I don't know, everything that exists, sort of, and also the passing on of knowledge. It's a very important and also very, I think, not by everyone. I mean, obviously, there are linguists who don't overlook it. But I think, for me personally, it's kind of an overlooked thing, being able to talk and communicate and stuff. I'll never forget this one way that language was once described to me. And it was a person, I think I was watching a YouTube video or something, but they said that language is a technology that humans invented to read each other's minds. And I think that's so true because if I talk to you, I can express what I am thinking. If I can't talk, I can't really do that. And so being able to talk and share and 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 let you read parts of my mind what i'm thinking and feeling and things like that well there's no end to that technology is there and i and i would call it a technology i think it's interesting calling the word technology now that nowadays cuz like when I think of technology, I think of circuits and screens and gadgets, oh my. But like, I think that you can just as easily make the argument that technology is fire or an axe or language because it is, what is technology but something that we have invented, right? So, language. But you may think, Harry, you can't just talk about language for three hours and I would bet to you that yes, I absolutely can because I talked about ants for the same amount of time. But no, we are going to be zeroing in on some specific aspects of language. So there you are. You are a, I don't know, seafaring trader, right? You have all these goods and goods and stock that you would wish to sell. But the only problem is, is that your best customers don't speak your language. They speak someone else's language and you don't speak their language. What are you to do? You don't want to go and learn a whole language. You're only alive for the next 10 years because you're 30 and this is the 1700s. What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You learn a lingua franca. That's right. Today, we're going to talk about lingua Frankers, or, I mean, I don't have a a definition for them, and technically in English it translates to language of the French, which isn't even what it is anymore. That's actually how this conversation started. I was talking with a mate, and she said, hey, have you heard of lingual Frankers? And I went, no, and she did this whole spiel on what they were, and then said, well, anyways, that's not actually what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the fact that it means language of the French, like, is translated as that, but now contextually it means something completely different. And I was like, "Oh, okay, no worries. Uh, thanks, thanks for the, the the history lesson." But lingua franca, although it technically translates to language of the French, what it really means is a way, is a form of communication that can uh, like a a bridge language, right? Something you can use to. 
uh, as kind of a third party, like, okay, I don't know how complicated Chinese is, and this person from China doesn't know all the complicated parts of English, but we can both kind of learn like Russian or another rounded language and communicate through that. I bet you use this kind of stuff all the time. I certainly do. Although, that being said, it is probably English because, lucky for us, I guess, uh, English has become one of the most common lingua francas in the world. You go, you go a lot of places and there's a lot of signs in English because English is considered a lingua franca. A lingua franca can also be a language. That's There's no worries there. But for example, at my work, where I work at a, uh, at a Thai restaurant, not a lot of folks, uh, not a lot of folks there speak like perfect English, right? But they do all speak a little bit of English. And I can kind of use uh, a, a version of English myself and we can communicate relatively effectively. Do I always know that the chicken's burning? Do I always know that uh, I need to put down another fried rice? No, absolutely not. But I imagine lingua francas aren't always used in such a high octane environment as a uh, as a kitchen. Mostly they use in trading and stuff like that. And English is one of the, the more common ones because if you're from, if you're from Japan and I am from Hungary, we can kind of use English to get around the things. And that just speaks to the prevalence of English across the world. But there, English isn't the only lingua franca out there. Another good example, I think, is international sign language. That's a lingua franca. If you know at least a little bit of international sign language, then you can kind of understand pretty much what someone else is saying in sign language. It's also, you know, very useful for people who can't hear. And so lingua francas in the verbal sense would be relatively useless. Another interesting lingua franca that I'm going to zone in on for a little bit here is Esperanto, which is a language that I had heard the name of, but I think I thought it was Spanish. Although I think, I don't think that's true. I'm just going to Google it. What do Spanish people speak? He said, Googling like a four-year-old. Okay. Well, apparently the languages of Spain is Spanish or in Spanish it's Castilian, which I did not know that. That is a crazy, crazy fact. But it's not Esperanto because I thought Esperanto was uh, Spanish, but it's not. Spanish is Spanish. Esperanto is a totally different thing. But imagine you are Ludwig Lazarus Zam Zamenhof. Ludwig Lud Ludwig Lazarus Zamenhof. There's a lot of Z's in that name, and you live in Warsaw in Poland, right? You're born in like 1857, I think was the number, and I'm just going to double check that fact. Hold on. 18, here, my guess is 1857. Ready? And the answer is 1859. Oh, so close. All right. You are Ludwig Lazarus Zamenhof, and you were born in 1959 to a father and a mother, as a lot of people are born. It's true. And your father, Mark Zamenhof, is a native bilingual speaker. He speaks both Yiddish and Russian, which is like, good for him. Interesting. I'm not a bi 
bilingual native speaker. But here's the thing. Mark is a teacher at the local school and teaches German and French. That's four languages this bloke speaks. And you, Zamenhof, get an interest in language from the very beginning because there are a lot of different cultural groups in Warsaw, Poland. There's a lot of different people. This is pretty early, you know, this is pretty early days as well, right? So, um, so you look around at all these people and you're, you're very anti-war, not a big fan of war. And so you think, hey, I think the reason all these people are fighting is because they all can't understand each other. They're all speaking a different language. What if someone, me, Zamenhof, what if someone were to invent a language that all of these people could speak together? Maybe there would be less conflict and stuff like that. And so you begin work on your life's project on Esperanto. You already have all of this knowledge about these languages that your your dad speaks and stuff. And then when you get to school, you learn Latin and you learn Hebrew and Greek and a language called Arama- Aramaic, which is a oh, Semitic language, ancient region of Syria. 3,000 years of Aramaic. You just learn and eat up languages like there's no tomorrow. In fact, by 1880... You're still developing the, the the thing, but you're also learning Italian and Lithuanian and Volapük. I'm just listing. This dude learnt so many languages. It's it's a little silly. But finally, in 1878, you finish your life's work. It's this. It's this like. And you've got a, a a booklet, and you can teach people, and it's all there. And you claim that the language you can learn in an hour. And the reason you can claim this is because Esperanto it kind of it kind of fits very nicely in a lot of those Proto-Indo-European languages. You know, Proto-Indo-European languages. I'm gonna Google it real quick, so I'm making sure I'm not spewing no facts at all. European. I think that's how you spell it. Proto-Indo-European languages. So it's this theory because um, German sounds so similar to English and English sounds kind of similar to French and we all make the same sounds with our mouths and stuff like that. I mean, as opposed to uh, like, like um, as opposed to uh, Arabic or Chinese and stuff like that, or Mandarin, I should say, like languages that, don't make the same kind of sounds we do. Here's another example. There are there are sounds in uh, in Thai that I just my mouth just doesn't want to say. I've I've come across a couple of them. One is like it's I can't I can't even describe them over the radio because I know I will butcher them. But all of uh, Esperanto fits really nicely. The grammar is very uh, uh, what's the word? It starts with an R. It's very uh, similar relative to all of these different uh, Proto-Indo-European languages. And so Esperanto fits ooh, quite nicely in there. And there's and because and when you're reading stuff like Esperanto, you can sort of like as an English speaker who doesn't know Esperanto, you can actually sort of like hear it. Like you can there are certain letters and words and stuff like that. I mean, Esperanto itself, 
describes uh, is translated into English as he uh, as one who hopes. So I mean, I don't know how you get Esperanto from one who hopes, but I was on an Esperanto website. Here it is, and um, you can kind of translate it back and forth between uh, uh, between both of the things. And Google's not letting me do that. Ah, here we go. And so catalogo, right? K A, and it's all spelt with. English lettering and stuff. Catalogo, K-A-T-A-L-O-G-O, translates to catalog. That's pretty easy. Uh, Congressoge, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's got a J at the end. How do you pronounce a J when it's at the end of the word? Regardless, Congressoge, that's congresses and things like that. And via Spaso is your space. Like you can see that there's, the grammar is very similar to uh, things like English and German and stuff like that, and all of these other vaguely European countries. But uh, Esperanto is spoken all over the world. It is actually the most spoken, the the most spoken uh, fabricated. They called it something. It was a fabricated international. It's an international auxiliary language. That's what Wikipedia defines it as. And the idea is that. Um, as an auxiliary auxiliary language, you're meant to make you're meant to speak it uh, as only as your secondary language. You have a you have a language, and then you use this to communicate, like a lingua franca, like what we were talking about before. But it's also one of the most widely spoken um, one of the most widely spoken constructed languages, which means that it was like you know built on purpose. It wasn't just like. Uh, it developed naturally, like English or or or, or Mandarin or, or Japanese was. It was built by someone from the ground up with you know language in mind. Right? It doesn't have any of those pesky weird vowels that English has, and it doesn't have any of those. I don't know. I bet there's something wrong with the Japanese language that people in Japan always hate about it. But it doesn't have any pesky things like that. It wasn't developed naturally. It's built from the ground up, a constructed language. And in fact, despite being intended as an auxiliary language, according to a census from a while ago, man, I really got to fact check my sources from, oh, here it is, from 2017, uh, about around 100,000 people on the planet, which isn't a lot, but it's also not zero, uh, speak speak Esperanto as their native language. Like this is the one they have grown up with, which is a pretty cool legacy to leave, um, uh, Zamenhof. Not bad. Anyways, so in nineteen eighty uh, in eighteen eighty seven, Zamenhof publishes this uh, this language, but unfortunately, it's met with a lot of criticism about 20 years later, just as it's really getting off the ground. Because I don't know if you know this, but um, Hitler and the Nazis were not so up for uh, the the Jewish people. And so when this Esperanto language was going around and, um, and, and it was written by a Jewish guy, because Zamenhof was Jewish, uh, it was... The, the Nazis tried really, really hard to stamp it out. So much so that uh, I think Zamenhof was dead by that point. Uh, Zamenhof died in 1917. But, uh, and, and obviously the Germans, uh, like, like the Nazis and stuff like that, was it was a bigger thing um, a, a bit later in history in like the 
1920s and stuff, 1930s and things like that. Whenever, whenever World War II was, God, I, I need to get my history right. But um, unfortunately, his three children uh, named uh, Adam, Zofia, and Lydia, all of them were murdered during the Holocaust, which is a real bummer. I apologize. But yeah, they were all... Uh, his son was shot and his two uh, his two daughters were sent to death camps because of their father. Well, I mean, mostly because they were Jewish, but also because of their father's invention, which was considered by the Nazis to be a way that Jews spread propaganda and things like that. And it was all, it, it, it was terrible. It's very terrible. But Esperanto survives and survives on in, and it's now spoken globally all across the world and is the second most common verbal lingua franca behind like we were talking about before english Esperanto was only invented 113 years ago. So what did we do before then and what do we still do today when you don't know about Esperanto? Well, you develop a pigeon. Pigeon. It's look, it's spelled P I P I D G I N. Pigeon. Pigeon, right? Not pigeon like the bird, pigeon. And a pigeon is a way of is is kind of the earliest form of two uh, of of a language of two languages coming together so it's a incredibly simplified gra- uh, grammatically speaking an incredibly simplified way of communication when there is no language between one group of people and another group of people so this obviously was very useful back in the day uh, and also a lot of a lot of pigeons when they're being referred to is like the Guinea-Bissau lingua franca, right? So this ties into lingua franca as well, but lingua franca is more of a a general term. This is more of a, a scientific term. It's like if I say dog and lingua franca, you say schnauzer saying pigeon, right? So that was a weird sentence, wasn't it? But I think you get my meaning. So uh these these are very early languages that are only when groups of people kind of come together and need to communicate in some way they develop this kind of communal language which i think is a is a really cool thing and just speaks to the testament of how clever an invention language is that we can kind of just sort of on the fly put one together a little bit it normally pigeons normally come together uh, using existing words that are already maybe not common between the two groups, but are kind of like you can kind of give you the meaning immediately pretty easily. Like, um, like they're not be a common word that means apple in both English and Thai, but I can tell uh, a Thai person what an apple is, and they can kind of remember that just as they can tell me that uh, what a chicken, uh, what chicken is called, and I can remember that as well. So uh, pigeons can often use shared words and body language. And what I thought was most interesting about this particular article, they can use onomatopoeia, which is like so clever because regardless of language, things make the same sound. Like we hear the same noises and stuff like that. Although I did find there's some interesting, um, I would do further reading on this. I'm not going to go too deep into it because I don't want to Google live on the radio or whatever, but 
with onomatopoeia, it's weird to hear the differences in onomatopoeia across languages. Like there's this great, all of the different noises that if if I were to if I were to imitate a cat, I'd say meow because that's the noise that a cat makes in English. But if you look at other languages and what noises cats make in those languages, it's hilariously different. But you can hear the cat in all of them, and also noises for like chewing and like munch crunch and things like that in other languages. It's just do some further reading. I haven't done any here, but I would highly recommend that. But Onomatopoeia can also serve in pigeons as well. Um, they're not. I, there's an important distinction that is made. Also, it's they've sometimes they're sometimes considered what's called a, a patois, which is like a non-standard informal way of speaking. Not necessarily slang because it's its own thing. It's not piggyback. It's its own thing from a combination. It's not piggybacking on a thing, but it doesn't refer to like specifically it doesn't refer to things like jargon or slang because these are kind of language things I don't really know linguistic systems that's a good way of saying god I sound smart when I say that linguistic systems these kind of linguistic systems jargon or slang are are forms of what's called cant and I didn't know this but a cant is a language that's specifically designed to exclude people who aren't in the know about this stuff that's what that's where the name thieves cant comes from which is how I know the word cant but it wouldn't be a Discover Thursdays if I didn't talk just a little bit, just a, just a smidge about the etymology of a word. So we're going to talk about the etymology of the word pigeon. Again, P-I-D-G-I-N, right? Now, a popular and also wrong way of uh, like of its etymology is to say that it's a derivative of the word pigeon like the bird because pigeons were used to carry messages back and forth throughout history and you know pigeon pid pigeon yeah uh, you see that but unfortunately they just sound alike and while it's a i wish it was true it's not instead pigeon and i'm reading this directly from the wikipedia which i try not to do but it's a sentence i can't really form any other way comes from uh, a chinese pronunciation of an of the English word business. I'm not sure how that really works, but that's one of the, that's the pigeon that I learned to know is the bastardization of uh, like Chinese, like characters and stuff into English words. You ever, you ever try learning Chinese and they've got all of those wild, like, um, or you try learning Mandarin or whatever. And they've got all those wild, like, uh, umlauts and, and lines above the A and, and, and dashes and Vs above the A and stuff like that. That's all uh, Chinese pidgin, which refers, which has been used for ages and ages and ages. The, the, like the 19th century and stuff like that uh, as a trade language to kind of cross that barrier because there's not a lot of commonality between uh, 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 Cantonese and Mandarin and English. Um let me scroll down a little bit just to find the thing I wanted to mention. So um, there is this theory, and this is also, remember before when I was talking about how I had this conversation with my friend about lingua francas, and she was talking all about like pigeons uh, or, or like pigeons and creoles. I might have mentioned creole before. Well, 
a Creole is in some circles, they believe it to be the next step up from pidgin, right? You've got a pidgin language and then a Creole language, which I'll get to in a little bit, and then a fully formed, genuine, bona fide language, right? Now, we just talked about pigeons, not the bird, but the kind of proto-language that exists between traders and stuff. And I said just before that there was a a kind of a, a stepping a stepping stone, a, a, a checkoff box that a language has to go through in order to become a real one. And it wouldn't be a Discover Thursdays if I didn't arbitrarily read out a list. So, of course, at the bottom, we've got Creole. Uh, sorry, at the bottom, we've got pigeons. And then at the top, we've got a fully formed language. But there's a middle person there. There's a middle thing, a middle child, right? Smack bang in the center. We've got Creoles, which is a very contested kind of a language. So, Creoles are considered more stable pigeons, right? They are what happens when you leave a pigeon alone for long enough. It will develop into a Creole. It will have its own... uh, It it, it is often characterized by its own distinct grammar. It doesn't necessarily share or kind of indoctrinate the two different grammars for from its parents but it's its own thing right it's it's got its own grammar there's a, its own spark of a language there that isn't just a fusion of other two things of other two languages and although some scholars but creoles are steeped in 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 debate there is no 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 two no two people can agree on what exactly a creole is because before like 30 seconds ago i said that a creole was the middling child in this in this like step up to a fully fledged language but some people don't think so some people believe uh some scholars believe that creoles can develop independent of pigeons because a pigeon is when you have two parties interacting together but then they're allowed to go home and just like you know speak their own language, but a Creole is when two different groups of people with two different language groups and stuff like that cannot, um, uh, well, not cannot, but like don't go home and they have to speak, uh, they they kind of combine their language together, not as a nece- not as a convenience, but as a necessity to communicate, right? So, you know, little column A, little column B, it's not, I personally, I think they both might be right, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Creoles around the world, or at least the documented ones, because a lot of them kind of die out due to this process called decreolization, which is because none of them are really official languages. These Creole speakers, uh, especially when they're native speakers, will often find it difficult to like get out into the world just on their Creole alone, so they'll default to one of the parent languages, which I was just about to say is traditionally European because the documentation of Creoles exploded during the quote-unquote age of discovery. Discovery is in quotes there. I don't know if you can see my hand movements through the microphone, but the age of discovery and the Atlantic slave trade because... All of these, um, suddenly all of these people who don't speak a European language are now having to speak a European language because they're being forced to. So a lot of these Creoles kind of crop up around this, around this time. And so a lot of Creoles today have some influence from 
Spanish or Dutch or English or Ger- Germanic and, and, and stuff like that, right? So, oh, I've lost my place in my notes. Um, yeah, because of the Atlantic slave trade and the, the shipbuilding and Europeans going out across the seas and all this stuff. A lot of scholars have tried to define, kind of put Creoles in a box, but like a, 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 middle, a, a middle-aging teenager in the, you know, languages going to adulthood, they just can't be put in a box, you know? They've got to do weird stuff. So no one's found a, a way to concretely uh, categorize Creoles. There are a couple, there was a, fo- a bloke I was reading about, his name was John McWhorter, W H. O R T E R John McWhorter, who um, who was a linguist who kind of talked about Creoles and went back and forth on them, whether or not they were just kind of a concept, a historical and social concept, or were they actually a linguistic, a genuine linguistic thing on their own? There's a lot of debate, and they used a lot of words that I don't actually understand. Um, so I didn't read it that much, but just know that it's frequent it is a thing of frequent debate but i think personally being someone who only just learned about this two days ago and read half a wikipedia article i'm so sorry for this this, i was i've been this is off the cuff of me shorts right now i'm just kind of doing stuff but i hope anyways enough apologize what what i was saying was personally i think that these it's like trying to categorize like just the the routines that people have in the morning, I guess. It's like they can be so varied and so different that there's not, I guess there's a point to calling them something vis-a-vis a Creole, but there's not really any point in saying like, yes, all Creoles follow this grammatical evolution because like they they are all purpose-built devices, right? They're all, uh, they're all proprietary. They're not like um, there's no standardized board that's like keeping all these Creoles in check. They're made, same with pigeons as well. They're made because they are needed in that moment. Let's have a look back on what we've talked about, hey? We talked about lingua francas and what exactly they were. A way to communicate between languages, a bridge language, if you will. And then uh, a very popular, uh, and then they kind of develop and we we kind of invent these languages as kind of uh, uh, ways to talk with each other. Popular ling- lingua francas include English, which is spoken all over the world, more or less at this point. Uh, international sign language, which is a non-verbal lingua franca that anyone can learn. And S. Esperanto, which is not the language of people in Spain, but it's actually its own constructed language altogether. We talked a little about a little bit about L.L. Zamenhof, the bloke who constructed the constructed language of Esperanto, and how his life went and what his uh, this crowning achievement of his was, and things like that. We also talked about pigeons and creoles, not the bird and not the dessert. Creole could be a dessert. I wonder where I'm getting that from. Not the bird and not the possible dessert, but the steps that a language takes in becoming a fully formed language. How two people can, or, or two groups of people who speak different languages can find common, can find this common ground in a pigeon and how that develops into a creole, or maybe it doesn't, but we discussed that earlier, and then eventually it becomes a fully formed language. Wow. What a 
whole mess of stuff that we talked about. I think it's very cool to look at this stuff, like really closely look at this stuff, you know, because we talk every day. Like we communicate with each other through writing and through speech and through body language all the time, so much so that it doesn't feel like there was ever a time when it wasn't there, when like we couldn't do that. This is just how it's been for centuries upon centuries. But, but there was a time before it. And so I think it's just a little bit important, just maybe a little bit, maybe it's just a little bit important to be thankful for the fact that we can communicate and talk to one another. And I think that's really, really cool. Discover Thursdays is written, hosted, and edited by me, Harry Bell. And thank you to Inspire Radio for providing the recording equipment. You can listen to this show and many more live at inspireradio.org.au and give them a follow on their Facebook page. Our theme music is Baby Tears Blues by Mort Garson. Discover Thursdays airs live every Thursday from 6am to 9am GMT plus 8. 